I'm Megan. And I'm Ben. And this is Comic Belief, an irreverent search for the reverent in a secular multiverse. Today is The Lord of the Rings. We hide on our knees in silence. Maybe God doesn't hear at all. And the weight overtakes the violence. And we watch as the giants fall. We're not gonna let it end this. So we, as you know, for this season have been doing books, mostly that have been turned into um, movies or television shows, not exclusively, but that's sort of been the theme. Uh, So Lord of the Rings is such an obvious choice. Um, It's now 20 years since the movies came out. And at least 20 years since the books. (laughs) A little bit more than that. Um, Yeah, I probably watched the movies once a year almost for the last 20 years, which is kind of crazy to think. It probably hasn't been once a year, but close because i just love them so much so um, they're very near and dear to my heart and our guest today is a newbie to lord of the rings and so it's very exciting to get to talk to him about it yeah we we because megan's a little too close to this she's seen them way too many times we we had to balance (laughs) out the average by finding someone who's only seen them once and actually just watched them for the first time recently uh and we did that by by thinking about who we know in the church world that keeps so busy and has so much on their plate that they wouldn't have had a chance to see them until finally now uh, with, with the restful job of uh, most recently the Bishop of Minnesota in the Episcopal church, uh, Craig Loya has, has agreed to come on and talk to us about Lord of the Rings. So yes. uh, I, I met Craig first in Kansas and then in Nebraska and, and he's just moving North state by state. So he'll eventually flee to Canada. <laughs> right. But before he does that, he, he's here with us for a minute and Craig, welcome to the podcast. Uh, it's great to have you on. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. It's good to connect with you both again. Yes. Yeah, Craig helped do our uh, premarital counseling, so he's a friend of the podcast. Yeah, that's true. I'd forgotten about that, but if you guys hear us like getting snippy with each other, you can you, you now know who to blame. And... <laughs> um, Craig, so we want to give you a, a nice softball question to, to start, because you're, you're a newbie to Lord of the Rings, but um, in, in this crazy, chaotic time in the world... Um, who, who are you in the fellowship right now um, in your life? Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say that right now I identify most closely with Gandalf. And I should explain mm-hmm. that that's not because I have an oversized appreciation for my own magical powers and <laughs> wisdom. Sure. But actually, it's because I'm really conscious these days of my own limitations. Mm. So both as a parent and as a bishop, you know, in both of those roles, I certainly have some responsibility and some authority. But in both of those roles, I'm also regularly reminded of my limitations and where my influence ends. And one of the things that I love about Gandalf is that he is certainly a really important, critically important character in the story. But there are also ways in which Gandalf's ability to influence the outcome of the entire story is pretty limited. He intervenes in some really important moments and does some really important things. 
but a lot of the outcome of the story is completely beyond his control. So I identify, I identify with that a great deal in this moment. <laughs> sure. Yeah. What about you, Ben? Yeah, it's funny. I, I like set up the question and I didn't bother to think ahead on it. <laughs> well, do you want me to go then? I thought about this. You can go ahead. I'll, yeah, I'll give it a little more thought. Um, it's funny, like in the past, I would probably, I don't know if there would be a specific hobbit that I would identify with, but I just feel very like I'm a hobbit. Like I just want to eat and sit and read and be cozy in my little hobbit hole. Um, but lately, <laughs> when Ben asked me this today, I was like, Gimli, it's Gimli. I'm just angry all the time. <laughs> I'm just like righteous anger. Um, I mean, I'm not that angry, but like that's definitely been because there's not a, I don't feel like there's a member of the fellowship that's represents like anxiety and neuroticism. So I have to go with the anger side of it, which is Gimli. So sure. Yeah. I I think mine probably right now is actually Boromir and, and it's similarly on the anger thing. And I, I don't feel like I'm giving into my worst impulses and temptations and things like that. But I, I definitely feel the like sort of overwhelming weight of what it feels like the tasks of, I mean, of ministry are and of like reconciliation in the world are. And I mean, in some ways, like standing against evil, which, which we'll talk about, I'm sure today, and it's sort of a complicated stance to take. I, I think it's very risky for Christians to say we're standing against evil. I, you know, I think there's a lot of sins that have been committed in the name of Christians saying we're standing against evil. But uh, the 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 relate the struggle that Boromir has in watching the ring kind of just get marched off in this fool's errand that like shows every sign of of just going horribly wrong and empowering all the wrong people along the way. Uh, I feel like I'm I'm just connected to that sense of again anxiety or fear and like the the question of like. It, isn't this maybe the right minute to give in just a little bit to temptation or take a little bit of a shortcut? Like surely these are the conditions that call on us to like, uh, you, you know, sort of set, set some values aside in the pursuit of others for just a little while. And, you know, part of what's amazing about Lord of the Rings is the, the way in which those, those very subtle temptations are played out. So uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying I'm doing that or going to do that, but I, I think I just, I, I related to Boromir a lot more than like, I don't know, 20 years ago when I was a kid, I was like, that guy's an idiot. Why is it like, why is he on the team? <laughs> so, so Craig, I think the, the big question we really wanted to invite you to reflect, I mean, we, te- we were joking about it, but uh, really y- you've come to this like later on in, in your fandoms and your ministry and all that. Uh, like you, you missed Lord of the Rings for, for decades. And uh, just now over winter break, I guess, got to sit down and read the books and watch the movies and kind of a bit of a family project. Yeah, that's exactly right. I I uh, didn't read all of the books over the Christmas break. I read them actually quite slowly through most of 2021. Mm. So I would sort of read one book and then leave it aside for a while. But I finished the last book in the trilogy, you know, like at 10 o'clock on New Year's Eve. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then I spent, I spent the week uh, or the several days after that watching all of the extended edition movies, which I'm not sure what required more hours reading the three books <laughs> or watching the extended edition movies. And yeah. my, both of my kids are just like, our daughter is 11. So she's just a little on the young side to do either the books or the movies. Mm-hmm. And our son is sick, so he's way too young, but I just started 
The Hobbit with them. So I've been oh, reading sorry. The Hobbit with them. So the project of reading them and watching the movies was really mine alone. And it's weird because I have I describe myself, my pop culture affiliations and, and sort of tendencies are what I would describe as nerd adjacent. <laughs> sure. So it is, it is a little strange given who I am in the world and who my closest friends have been and how I show up uh, in my life that I have never bothered to read those books before. And I think that was really the impetus behind starting them in 2021 was just a recognition that this is a major gap in my cultural formation mm -hmm. and that was really the motivation to start reading them this year i was just saying like my mom had read lord of the rings in high school i think her like her english class or something is you know not long after they came out um, and so she always loved them and tried to get me to read them and i just never got into it until the movies came out and then i was like oh mm -hmm. my god this is amazing and then i read uh the books um and then actually in our um Christmas break was similar to yours and that when we went to Tulsa to stay with my mom we just spent the evenings watching I think we got through six of the seven or five of the six DVDs um we didn't quite finish Return of the King with my mom yeah. we came home and watched that but but that was um, probably okay because your, your mom when we said when we sat down to watch them she said oh good we can watch that scene with Aragorn in the second yeah. movie <laughs> So. <laughs> yeah, as long as mom and I can get to the scene in Two Towers where Aragorn opens the doors of Helm's Deep, then we're good. Like, that's all we need. Yeah, yeah she was very <laughs> Because <laughs> they came out, I was like a freshman in college, and they came out, and it was just like, so many attractive men. So that was also like, it was just a plus at the time. But <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There's, there's maybe a word to... That. Yeah, there's maybe a word to add here about all the attractive men and, and relatively few women of, of any attractiveness yeah, level in, in these books. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't I don't know that we need to belabor that on this podcast, but let, let's definitely just mark it that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote a book about a lot of dudes saving the world and they, right. they meet some beautiful women along the way. But yeah, yeah I guess there's, there's a time I would have very much related to Eowyn and her unrequited love um, for sure. That was... <laughs> Yeah, I'm past that part of my life now. But so I, I'm I'm curious about a couple things, Craig. And one is like, so nerd adjacent does that, is that like more fantasy football than fantasy? Is that a fair description? I think I think so. The way I would say nerd adjacent is that I've always been friends with people who are you know really into sci-fi. Mm -hmm. Or, or deep dives into the comic book universe. or um, And I've always admired that tendency and sort of wished that I had that obsessive tendency. For me, I think sometimes it's maybe just boils down to attention span. Um, <laughs> so I really, I really love those worlds, but I don't have the focus that it requires to kind of really be obsessed with those. So I've been close friends with people who are like full on into the nerd world and I've always admired that and been a little envious of it but never been able to fully jump into obsession myself yeah so so what makes you envious like what what do you think they're getting out of that that you don't quite or, or is it something you're getting elsewhere in your life or it's just missing yeah that's a great question I think it's one of the reasons why I liked the Lord of the Rings books so much is because they are not exactly quick or easy reads yeah. and they sort of force you to be 
fully submersed in the world of the of the of the universe of the of Middle Earth. And I think there is so so for people that go full on nerd on things, I think there's something that's really satisfying and liberating about spending a lot of time completely inhabiting a, a mythological world that is rich and has its own integrity and has a sort of inexhaustible complexity to it. Yeah, that's great. I, I, I think what's fascinating about that is to some extent, like the point in the project of a, a podcast like ours is to say like, look, all these other worlds are actually our world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, we'll, and we'll get into some of those connections later here, but uh, uh, there's also that piece of just the, you know, we call it escapism as a shorthand. Um, but th- it is, I think, one of the fiction and fantasy and science fiction are, are a realm where it's sort of socially fair game to go out and like use things like curiosity and wonder and creativity. And, you know, I, I think the, the sort of the labels have kind of clicked over from where nerd was like a, a total negative tag in the 70s or 80s to being someone who's sort of like wonkishly weird and, and focused on something uh, later on. And now it's sort of all celebrated, you know, Hollywood's kind of like, well, we can, we can make a lot of money off the nostalgia of these people. Right. Um, but I like, you know, everyone is aware of the Lord of the Rings movies and, and the Marvel cinematic universe now and those kind of things. And I, I think they've kind of come all the way back into a place where now they're, they're telling stories that are holding up a mirror of different kinds of things and so, yeah, you, you get like Lord of the Rings and it, some of that old Tolkien uh, morality tale stuff is just baked into it. And some of it is sort of a matter of, of reflecting on the world of today and, and all that kind of stuff. But, yeah, I, I think that's that's really exactly right. I was thinking about Lord of the Rings. And to me, what I love about that fantasy world and science fiction and fantasy in general is that really good science fiction and fantasy is not pure escapism in in the way some other things might be like just a just a mental break just a way of checking mm-hmm. out from life i think that something like lord of the rings is provides a kind of disruptive escapism you know where by inhabiting fully this alternate mythological world it disrupt something in how I understand or experience my own life or, or shakes things up and, and reassembles things in a way that help me understand something about my world a little bit better. I mean, I think we'll probably get into this later, but it's one of the ways in which I think Lord of the Rings works as a fundamentally Christian work of literature is that it is not straight allegory in the way, say, the you know the Narnia uh, yeah. series is, but it uh, it creates this entire world where the gospel narrative is sort of remixed, you know, and, and yeah. plays out and plays out in different ways, which sort of disrupts the normal assumptions and and kind of autopilot way that I can even as a committed Christian I can come to experience the gospel. Yeah. Well, on that note, um, so I've always had this theory um, since I saw the movies that each member of the fellowship represents a different aspect of Jesus Christ. And it's not like a one for one. This is all just like in my head uh, comparisons I made. So I'm like, there's no uh, 
I have no plans for any sort of formal research on this. Um, but like Aragorn is you know, Christ the King. Um, Frodo is Christ crucified. Sam is Christ the servant. Gandalf is sort of a cross between like Christ resurrected since he literally has a resurrection, uh, but also like Christ miracle worker. Um, Legolas is a little tricky because um, I sort of think of like elves being immortal. So like Legolas is a little bit of this um, immortal figure, but also I just think of the scene where they're on the mountainside and he's literally walking across the top of the snow and it's sort of like this Christ walking on water. Um, Boromir is Christ tempted. Mary is sort of the like Christ unexpected, like the fact that Jesus was you know, this nobody from Nazareth and like the hobbits are like these little tiny people. And so he's, um, oh, sure. especially like at the end with the witch king of Angmar of um, helping because no man can uh, kill him. Uh, and so Mary helps in that. And then Pippin is sort of Christ, uh, the mischief maker. So like Christ going off, uh, in the temple as a kid or him just upsetting um, all the people in power. And then Gimli obviously is Christ righteous anger. So those are my yeah that's... connections there. <laughs> I, I love that. I've never, yeah. I've never thought through it that much. I, I had, as I was reading the books, you know, what occurred to me is that the Christ figure, you know, there's no one person in the books that, that functions entirely as a Christ mm -hmm. figure. And I sort of had, in terms of the fellowship, really thought about Christ's three primary roles, you know, prophet, priest, and king yeah. being represented by Frodo as prophet, Gandalf as priest, and Aragorn as king. Yeah. Nice. And I'd never really thought about, but I love all those other dimensions of who Jesus is mm -hmm. being represented in different ways. I sort of, you know, it always seems like to me in a, in a Christian cosmology, I always thought about the elves as sort of like angels. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, that they sort of inhabit this middle space between, um, you know, mortal mortality and immortality or yeah. between heaven and earth. Yeah. And there's, there's sort of a, I, I'm, I'm not up on my sort of theology of angels, but it, there is always sort of this this longing to be able to change more and kind of ha have more life. I think that you sort of see in angel fiction, science fiction, fantasy, and and the elves definitely have a bit of that, right? They kind of condescend about the world of, of humankind in Middle Earth, uh, this sort of coming age of the humans, but uh, they also kind of kind of are clearly missing some of the the. I want to use that word mischief again, even though it's a hobbit word for Megan, but they, they, they miss some of that good trouble the humans get into that actually changes things. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, so Craig, I, I think we really do want to give you a chance to, I, I feel like we're hoping that there's something of a purity in your experience as somebody who's coming at this from being nerd adjacent and, and not like steeped in this stuff for 20 years of, you know, panels and, and articles and everything else. Uh, do you have other big takeaways or just when, when you put the book down on New Year's Eve and, and kind of sighed and said, wow, or like, what, what, what did you experience? What was there? Yeah, what I really experienced, and this, this rarely happens to me, mostly because my interests tend to be broad enough that it's harder for me, or I never feel as motivated to do a completely deep dive into something. But my first impulse when I finished 
the return of the king on new year's eve was i wanted to start the fellowship of the ring over again yeah wow and i mean immediately and and i decided i really wanted to start to introduce my kids to it so i wanted to read the hobbit with them but part of the reason i wanted to start it all again is i think megan's point about christ's roles being being distributed between the members of the fellowship you know the book just has that kind of complexity yeah that it, it's it does seem to me like there would be no way to ever fully exhaust the different resonances and meanings of it you know when i started to share with people that i had read these and that it had made a big impact on me i had a couple of people tell me that they read the trilogy almost once a year mm-hmm. as a spiritual exercise. And that yeah. really resonates with me. I can completely understand that. So I think that was my first impulse was that I just wanted to start the books again. I think and, that's something to, to, sorry to interrupt, to, to do with like fandoms is for me as a person with multiple fandoms is that's how I feel every time like I watch one of these movies or read these books. It's like, oh, and I either want to start them over again or I look forward to the next time I get to experience them again. And then when you do um, come back to them, very much feels like like old friends, especially something like Lord of the Rings where it's a series and they're really like, it's so um, you're emotionally invested in them all. Um, so when you come back, like it's just like this reconnection. Um, and then I had another... Oh, just like how rich the worlds are. That's the other thing that's really uh, always draws me in is like every time I revisit them, it's like you notice something new and then you relate to things differently at different points in your life. Like that's something I've been experiencing a lot lately is because I, I decided like this year um, and going into 2022 is like I wanted to read books that were like my comfort books. So things like Lord of the Rings is on my list. Mm. Um, and so rereading some of my old favorites as an adult I'm just picking up totally different messages and themes and feelings about them than I did when I was like in high school. Um, and that's been really powerful to me um, and really yeah. enjoyable. So Yeah. It's really interesting that you say that um, because one of my other fandoms is uh, Star Trek, the next generation. Right. So it's, <laughs> it's really the only Star Trek series that I ever watched or ever really connected with but i've often described my fandom of star trek the next generation is exactly that way like i to this day i i started watching that when i was a junior in high school Mm -hmm. and to this day i really feel like those characters are my friends you know like i really do feel uh, uh an emotional connection to them beyond just um you know, what's, what's in the show. I don't think I feel quite that way yet about the characters in the Lord of the Rings. You know, I don't know that I have that. I love the books. I love the characters. I don't know if it functions in the same way. So I wonder if that's, I almost regret that I did not read these books when I was in, you know, between the ages of like 15 and 19 or something like Mm -hmm. that, where I think it could have functioned that way. So one thing I wonder about with some of these fantasy worlds is is there kind of a period in our own intellectual and emotional development where there's kind of a sweet spot where these these kinds of worlds can resonate in particular ways? So I, I wonder if I'll ever come to feel about the characters in Lord of the Rings the way I do about data, 
from stress. Right. Yeah, right. Well, I think that's important because I think a lot of things like hit us at the right time in our life. And like, so one of my favorite movies ever is The English Patient. And I saw it when I was like in eighth grade and it was way over my head. But it was the movie that like changed the way I watched movies. And if I had seen it for the first time as an adult, I probably would have been like, oh, that's nice. Like, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, but seeing it as like a 14 year old. And of course, my what I love about it now is very different than what I loved about it when I was 14. But um, it just, uh, it changed so many like directions in my life in terms of like what books I was reading, what movies I was watching. Um, and some of them, it was just like being a pretentious 14 year old. Um, but, sure. but it really did like, it really changed things. Um, and I think there's a lot of things I could trace back to that. Whereas if I had watched it for the first time at any other stage in my life, it just might not have hit in the right way. And so it's really interesting to look back on those things and think like, yeah, how is this, um, how would this be different if I had read it or experienced it at a different time? So. Yeah, my guess is that the, the the specific piece about connecting on a friend's level to characters is something that can happen at different times. Uh, that uh, one of the podcast episodes we did, which is a, it's a train wreck of an episode, uh, <laughs> but we we just sort of nerded out about uh, K dramas, Korean soap operas, <laughs> which, which is something we started watching during the pandemic quarantines because when you're, when you're reading subtitles, you can't also doom scroll on your phone. (laughs) And, uh, but I remember the, the first one we watched was about like a romance among office mates and old friends at a publishing company. And when we finished that, I said to Megan, like, I feel like I miss our friends already. (laughs) And so I think that was a, I mean, the conditions on the ground here, right. There's a lot of isolation. Like we, we have friends, but our friendships are being lived out differently. Uh, and being able to like hang out with these people as they go get drinks or you know go on dates or uh, chat about each other and all that stuff like w- kind of lived out that that um, that that projected friendship in in its own way and time. So uh, anyway, I, I think it, it's a concept I've heard before, and I do think that people can get some of the social like needs we have to have friendships out of watching people on TV and having, having characters and things. Yeah. The term uh, is parasocial relationships. Parasocial relationships. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have and- a lot of parasocial relationships with the podcast hosts of podcasts that I listen to, because I've listened to them for years yeah. and you like learn about their families and things. And so someday there might be people that have parasocial relationships with us, but right. right. Yeah. Well, and I, and I yeah. do think like, it's not all negative, right? Like the, oh. I, I think, I think there could be a, 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 an impulse to sort of say like, well, that's fake, right? These, these are fictional things. And so these are not real relationships. And like the, the relationship has a reality that is within, you know, the creativity and the fiction and all of that, uh, which is its own thing. And it, it's not the same as a, as a friendship with a person, but it's, it's something and I do think just like psychologically, like we are always working out who we are and reacting against concepts that we, we see on the screen. I mean, this is an idea at least as old as Plato's Republic, where like literally the, the premise is people are sitting around at a dinner party trying to decide what the best kind of community is. And, and Plato, Socrates, as Plato's mouthpiece says, well, I bet if we design a city because a city is bigger than a person, we can figure out how the, the parts of a person fit together by like looking at the analogy to the parts of a city and like superhero fiction or Lord of the Rings, it's kind of that same deal, right? It's this larger than life presentation of ideas like temptation or piety or 
friendship or self-sacrifice and like, you know, these different things that come up in the movies. And it's a way of sort of exploring like, oh yeah, like here's the consequences if you, if you like become afraid and don't do the right thing and you can be forgiven, but here's what it costs people along the way and that kind of thing. Uh, so I, it's a chance, you know, there is this chance to work stuff out kind of in a, in a creative space that I think can change us and can shift us and can let us identify with, with people we aspirationally want to be like. So, yeah, I think that's, that's really great. And it, you know, you had asked me originally, Ben, what were some of the takeaways having read this just brand new for the first time in this moment? And that's actually one of them is one of the things that really struck me about the trilogy is the way in which friendship itself is a primary framework for counteracting the forces of evil. Yeah. So, you know, obviously that's true between Frodo and Sam Mm -hmm. and, but, but it, but it, it sort of ripples out to other characters. Like one of my favorite relationships is the relationship between Gimli and Legolas. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and, and, and then the, the relationship between particularly in the, in the first part of the two towers, which follows, you know, I think it's uh, Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas basically chasing after Merry and Pippin who have been mm-hmm. kidnapped by the orcs. And and when they're finally reunited again, it's clear that there's just this, you know, on the one hand, Merry and Pippin to the others had kind of seemed like just, you know, extra weight. You right. know? Yeah. <laughs> they, yeah. were, they weren't really, they weren't really like bringing anything useful and then when they're reunited, there's just this, this palpable affection yeah. that that everyone has developed for for one another. And so I think you know there's something there's something about the fact that friendship is not just about strategic alliance or right. you know yeah. coming together to produce or accomplish something. It's not just a transactional arrangement, but there you know friendship itself is this kind of gift that we're given where where like we delight in someone else and what i love about the books is that that really happens between the members of the fellowship and i think that in and of itself is part of counteracting how the how the trilogy imagines evil shows up in the world sure and that's something that really struck me watching it this time around which i i remember noticing watching the films at the first time around Um, but this time it really struck me just in the sort of climate that we're in. It's like the tenderness between men, Mm -hmm. um, like in this era of toxic masculinity to see like Aragorn kiss Boromir or Sam Frodo kiss Sam. And just like this very, um, yeah, tenderness between them that is shown amongst really almost all of them, um, at one point or another, it was just very touching to see and, I wish we had more of that in, yeah. in our pop culture. I, I think the scene it made me think of in the relationship is actually between, and, and I get the two mixed up, but is it, is it Pippin that winds up being the, the squire to the steward of Gondor at the end? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Right. So Pip, Pippin winds up telling the story of Boromir's death and like has every sort of foundation to say like, he screwed up royally, right? Like he he died terribly. He endangered everybody. He drove Frodo away. You know, the fellowship would have been better off without. Like he could have damned the man uh, in his memory, right? 
and kind of sat in a pretty objective seat of judgment on him, you know, and as far as anyone can, can objectively judge another person's life. And instead he, he keeps that measure of tenderness for him. And, uh, you know, he's honest about the ways in which he, he failed. Uh, but he, he also talks about the courage he had at the end and the fact that, you know, he Pippin is alive for his sacrifice and, wants to pay it back. Right. And, and again, in a sort of transactional morality, he could sort of say like, well, you know, he, he endangered us all. So it was fitting that he sacrificed himself, but instead Pippin swears his own allegiance back now to, to this man who really is not worthy of it. Um, You know, this sort of corrupted steward of, of Gondor, but he like Pippin has made a choice for himself to honor uh, that piece of fellowship, right? And, and and a friendship that never really in this life came into what it could or should have been, but still was, was a meaningful part of the journey that they had together. Yeah. And that's a really interesting moment to me that I've thought a lot about since I finished the books where, um, you know, Pippin swears allegiance to Denethor, the steward of Gondor, right. you know, and, and Tolkien, Tolkien famously said that, you know, it's a fundamentally Catholic work, the trilogy. And he said that in one of his letters that he um, purposely removed or did not include, like there's no religiosity in that universe. There's no mm-hmm. practice of religion. There's, you know, very few rituals and that sort of thing. And he wanted to really embed the religiosity into the story itself. And in that moment where Pippin kind of pledges himself to Denethor, it's this really weird moment that to me, as I was reading it, felt like a, like a truly charismatic moment because the way it's told in the book, he doesn't really know. He doesn't think about it ahead of time and he doesn't really know why he's doing it. And then Gandalf in that moment is also kind of baffled you know i mean gandalf's response to that is sort of like i don't really know what you're doing or how that's gonna go or or why you would bother doing it so gandalf has this sort of wonderful like trust and curiosity about that like i don't think that's a great idea but it's happening (laughs) and you know here we go and then it turns out i mean and and i think mary does the same thing to theoden and it, their their commitment to those two put Mary and Pippin in critical moments later on be, because right. of that commitment that they made. So it's just, yeah, to me, yeah. that felt like like what I would describe as a Holy Spirit moment. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to think, too, that if, if a piece of what's happening in Middle Earth is, is the age of men is arriving, right? The age of humans kind of defining the, the lives of nations and the movements of history. And you know, the elves are sort of retreating from acting and just observing as they leave. And the hobbits have sort of been constantly overlooked, but are being intruded upon by the weight of history and are are sort of in their way trying to find what they're being called on to do. So having them each wind up in, I, I mean, all four of them sort of winding up in the service of the great events of history and, and looking for a place, um, I think it's sort of an interesting, like th- there's an energy to that that I think a lot of people are feeling right now about sort of the the weight of the the calling that public life places on us, 
And, you know, with, with information technologies and other, other just tools of, of the modern era, like public activity, public organ, organizing of people and time is, is something that can, can draw more of us into public life. And, and we similarly sort of, it, it, you can't ignore the shadow of Mordor spreading across the land, right, around various issues. And so it, it, there's sort of an interesting, like, calling in from the suburbs of the hobbits, I guess. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder, I wonder what the two of you think about, there's a moment in The Return of the King, and I believe it's as uh Frodo and Sam are, it's it's part of their early, as they just are entering Mordor and, and some of that long, long stretches that they have to just sort of wander and talk. You know, there's this point at which Sam kind of goes totally meta for a while. And he, he starts to say, you know, hey, do you think all those, do you think anybody's ever going to tell stories about us? Right. And, yeah. and he says, do you, do you think those people that we heard all those stories about and all this, you know, basically all the songs and legends that we've heard through the whole trilogy, do you think those people knew that they were playing that role in the service of moving history along? And it's this really fascinating kind of riff that Sam does. And, you know, the, the sort of takeaway or the punchline from it is, I don't, I don't know if they knew they were playing this important role and, and we don't know if we're really playing this important role or if this is just going to be a total forgotten failure, but, but the fact remains like all we can do is do the next thing that's in front of us. Yeah. And, and that feels like that um, the, the kind of, you know, humility is the antidote to the sort of misplaced faith of Sauron, you know, and um, so it's just to, to me, that's a takeaway for this moment that all of us are, we're in this transitional moment in the life of our world. And all of us have some role to play in that. And none of us know how that's all going to sort itself out. But there is something profound about, you know, all, all anyone can do is, it's not up to us to have the whole map, but all we can do is do like the next thing that's in front of us. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is not the Frozen Two episode, but I'm I'm guessing with young kids, you you've maybe seen that movie also, Craig. Oh, I have a, a, a time of five. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, that that next right thing song I think is is pretty apt yeah. in in that film and the storytelling it does. Yeah, but but to zero in on that, like both both the humility and I think the, like the anonymity of it, and it's funny, right? Like they're in a land where literally the the eye of Sauron is looking around to see what it can see and spy. And they're wondering a little bit about the, the backwards gaze of history and whether it can see them uh, or, or whether they're invisible. You know, like if, if they become visible to the present, their errand fails, right? But if, if they are visible to the future, maybe they've succeeded. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there there is a sense in which, like, I mean, you could sort of make a moral rule out of at, the idea that you should act as if history is watching what you're doing, Right. Um, even if no one ever will know, but I think it also just like gives really good voice to the the loneliness of doing the right thing sometimes. I mean, here they are surrounded by thousands of orcs, you know, any of whom are happy to do them ill and worse. Right. And like the, the, the scale of what they've been asked to do seems ridiculous. It seems impossible. And here they are, these two hobbits, you know, wandering forward with barely a roadmap and, um, and yet, like, it's the only thing they know that, that is supposed to uh, fix the world, right? So, 
Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe even just giving voice to the loneliness of, of that kind of action and how important it is to have a friend that you can talk to about it as you're going is really important. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, the thing that really, that I did not see coming in the books at all is, you know, Frodo's ultimate failure um, at, at the end yeah, know, that, that he can't get rid of. And that the whole way that the ring is destroyed to me was so, uh, so profound. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's sort of, it, it's not, it's not that Sam ensures that the ring is going to be destroyed, but it, it is true that if not for that deep, tender affection that exists between Frodo and Sam, it never would have, and not just for the practical support that Sam provided, you know, right, all along, right. but just like, if not for that affection between the two of them, there's no way, you know, Sam is able to kind of stay steady in the face of Frodo's um, contempt, you know, when he starts to be consumed with the ring. And then uh, at the very end, you know, with Gollum ultimately being, you know, Gollum's energy for the ring is ultimately what destroys the ring also mm -hmm. seemed you know really profound in that moment yeah that was my next question was sort of like what do you either of you take as sort of Gollum's role because it's like he doesn't quite get a redemptive arc I mean in some ways he does in some ways he doesn't but ultimately because of him the ring gets destroyed like I never really thought about that until just now just for me, I think both I think both Gollum and Saruman play similar roles mm -hmm. in the story, in the sense that they are it's it's a little bit like original sin, you know, yeah. where they are they are simply caught up in something and they are as kind of pitiable in their evil as they are contemptible. Mm -hmm. you know that they're um they're sort of classic examples of of the way small misguided choices lead to profound evils wow. you know and and so i don't know that i would say Gollum ultimately is redeemed in the end i think he's sort of he's sort of a figure that's both condemned and redeemed in equal measure through the whole story right which sort of works with the whole Gollum smeagol split um right kind of the two right. aspects of his personality right yeah i think that's that was my take with him i think is i it, it's funny i for some reason watching him this time i i thought a lot about uh people who wrestle with addiction mm -hmm. uh because mm -hmm. the ring the ring is an addiction right and yeah. on the one hand and uh, literally on the one hand. Um, but it's like every, every day that he's Smeagol is a redeemed day. And every day that he's Gollum is a day where the addictions got him. Yeah. And I think uh, there's, there, there's an honesty that is not brutal in uh, the recognition that uh, his addiction is fatal for him. And that it was, I, I think what, what's amazing is I think you, you could, I think my, my 10 year old self reading these in the fourth grade probably would, would have looked at this and thought like, oh, well, he, he, he's like Boromir, right? He, he loses in the end. He's a bad guy. Uh, I, I thought he might be a good guy, but he's not. 
Um, but but being reductive about the life he's lived in that way, I think, m- m- loses layers, right? It, it loses a, a, an awful lot. Mm-hmm. And I think now watching it, uh, like, I, I would say that it is it is not meaningless that Frodo pitied him along the way and brought back some of his, uh, not humanity, but hobbitity, right? <laughs> um, and that yeah yeah and i think gandalf even says in the book something there's a line something like uh i'm not convinced that he doesn't have a role to play by the end of this as if gandalf kind of you know read the tea leaves and could see uh again the sort of practical transactional impact of of what he does but but also i think it's it's important that he didn't just get dragged along by elf rope the whole time but but also had a chance to come back to a bit of himself and and the healing that he had is is not meaningless, even if it didn't save his mortal life. I think that's really true. And there's a way in which, you know, it, it's it's tempting. The two of you, I think, are um, much more uh, steeped in fantasy literature than I am. So I wonder what you think how this plays out in other in other places. But there's a way in which the you know, I'm thinking of Boromir and Gollum and Saruman. On the one hand, are they they sort of end up as villains in the story? But I wonder if there's also partly a, a warning to see parts of ourselves that are like our own shadow sides are reflected very much in those three. So I was resonating with what you said, Ben, at the beginning when you said you feel a little bit like Boromir. You know, I think that's true for all of us that Boromir, you know, his his intention is good. Like we've got to like don't just send this thing with these two little hoppets yeah, right. into the like I mean, you know, what Boromir's <laughs> position is perfectly reasonable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and his it's like his commitment to his own powers of reason is what ultimately starts to consume him. So I don't know, I, I think I, I really those three characters I was just fascinated by because they are they are patterns that just show up in different ways in so many places and i think there's there's parts to all three of those that that all of us in our sinfulness are vulnerable to mm-hmm. and denethor too mm-hmm. has this like i don't know if it's like a power corruption or you know like he'll never be king uh, they're just the stewards of gondor and they're left with this, you know, the ultimately the fall, which he doesn't live to see that it is redeemed. But um. right, or, or Theoden, I think, with that that very human speech uh, in the films, especially of, you know, wh- where were they in our hour of need? Why why now in their turn yeah. should we give up our safety and go help them? And um, yeah, that. that uh, yeah, I'm, I, you know, that, that idea of um, help, helping those who, cur- you know, blessing those who curse you um, as, as a moral calling uh, yeah. is really challenging. It'd be interesting, you know, given Megan's impressive way of um, mapping the different <laughs> aspects of Christ onto the members of the fellowship. It'd be interesting to map out like the seven deadly sins Ooh. on some on some of the like minor villains in the yeah. In sure story. yeah yeah denethor definitely models gluttony in the film presentation yeah. Uh, eating yeah. Scene, yeah every time i eat cherry tomatoes I think 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, every time. Um, yeah. I don't need time to think about it. I've had 20 years to think about the... The virtues. The, the <laughs> fellowship, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah um, I bet you could do the, the seven deadly sins and the um, fruits of the spirit. Would probably yeah, the, all, all kinds of lists, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. There is something... Um, I had just like taken a note on this, but but sort of speaking of Gollum and the temptation of the ring, I I reread, I started rereading the books, Craig, kind of in prep for this episode, and I think it's it's chapter two of Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, the way that that the ring is described in there, I kept replacing ring with cell phone and mm-hmm. it was a damning <laughs> chapter mm-hmm. uh i mean things like he, he used to take it out and look at it or stroke it without <laughs> even knowing why and like and i'm just sitting there thinking like shoot 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 <laughs> um <Yep>. so <laughs> it yeah we I, I feel like we're all culturally like about a half step away from like calling them my precious and right. I guess I yeah. precious is probably going to be the oh, phrase, but, um, but like we're, we're so close friends. <laughs> um, so yeah. if, if you need to deprogram yourself, maybe go read that, that beginning of fellowship and, yeah. and just think about it a little bit. Um, yeah, that I'll have to go back and read it with that lens. I mean, that's a whole other approach you could take to the books is a dick, you know, because, because the, the way the the ring consumes people has so much of an analog to the way addiction works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it'd be interesting to read it through that lens. As as the two of you know, um, you know, I think some of the spiritually healthiest people that I've ever known are people for whom recovery has been a major part of their lives yeah and so to read that through the lens of addiction and recovery you know what i've what i've maintained for a long time is that i don't think there's anyone who does not suffer from the dynamics of addiction it's just that you know we all we all have different ways in which addiction manifests itself in our lives and for many if not most of us these days you know the fact that most people can't stop at a stoplight without taking out the eye precious is, is, is just Uh one way that that shows up. Yeah. And I think like being aware that, um, that like the cell phones are designed to be addictive. They're, they're made to keep us on them. And so like taking some of that shame around it, um, can be helpful. It doesn't Mm -hmm. really, stop the addiction but like like but there are there's like things that you can do to like turn off notifications and even turning your cell phone to like black and white i've heard like um can help because it's not this like colorful beeping Uh. dopamine producer um and to realize too that like you know when we all got smartphones it was so we could have a phone a camera and our ipod to listen to music to take pictures and to talk or text and now it's like this completely necessary thing and that we barely even use computers anymore because we have them in our pocket. Yeah. And um, so again, just chapter two of fellowship, yeah. right? No, I mean, <laughs> it's, the, the, ring, the ring has its own mind. It has its own purpose for you. <laughs> I, I, I'm always saying that to, to help people take some of the shame and guilt right, away from yeah. that. And <laughs> to put the blame and shame on 
tech it's, companies. It's not that you should be embarrassed that you, that you can't resist your phone. It's that your phone was created by Sauron and evil yes! elf magic thousands <laughs> yes! of years ago. 100%. Forged by dwarf fire. You couldn't smash it with an axe. Like... In the fires of Mount Doom. Yes. That's, that's it, friends. We, we just had yeah. a volcano go off in New Zealand. We all need to take a pilgrimage there yeah. when lockdown's up. I Drop actually your phone have... in the fire. It's the I only way. Passed, I have passed Mount Doom on a train. Um, when I was in New Zealand, going from the North Island to the South Island, or no, it's just across the North Island. It went from um, Auckland to Wellington. And about the halfway point, you like get off the train and you can like go to the little snack shop or whatever. And in the distance, there's, um, I don't know if it's Mount Ruapehu. That's the only mountain I, name I can remember. But one of, there's a mountain and that's what they like digitally used for Mount Doom. So I technically seeing the real Mount Doom. And I've shaken hands with Gandalf. That's my two Lord of the Rings. Yeah. That's or three, because I have solid. Andy Serkis' autograph. Nice. Wow. So that's it. That's my bragging. I love, the fa- I love the fact that in New Zealand, at some of these places, there are like little touristy acknowledgements mm-hmm. that that's where something happened. Yeah. You know, I, yeah, I've never right. been there, but one of my favorite places in this country is Hannibal, Missouri, which is the birthplace uh-huh. of Mark Twain. And one of one of the things I delight in about Hannibal, Missouri, is that everything in Hannibal, Missouri, is named something in a Mark Twain novel. <laughs> right. And, you know, so there's like the you know the Tom Sawyer gas station, or mm-hmm. you know, a, a, literally everything in the town is like that. Yeah. Right. Right. Take take a great deal of delight in. Yeah. Right. And a little bit of opportunism there for sure, but also like people are making their pilgrimage and. it's it's interesting to think like you can go to new zealand and see lord of the rings sites and like the the factuality of that is intact right like if you go to the scene where they shot such and such part of the movie like it's there like literally they like we we are clear that that's the spot yeah but then like i know many people who go on holy land pilgrimages and i think it's somewhere between hannibal missouri and mount doom in new zealand right (laughs) like not not only geographically but like they've got a bunch of sites and i think you know some of it is is done in sort of er earnest desire to promote faithfulness and piety in people and a chance to connect with the historical location of, of things that we know about from scripture and like uh, I, i've never been but my understanding is there are crowds of tourists there are plaques everywhere there are you know 14 different sites that are all the upper room where jesus had the last minute last meal with his disciples so um the it, it's it's interesting to me that people go on nerdy fandom pilgrimages to these spaces that that are that we are as we're discussing teach real moral lessons and we can do it with a greater degree of sort of truthiness right uh of factuality than we are able to do with these sites from thousands of years ago from from holy scripture and and the events that formed our tradition and i i don't know if there's a there's probably just a good bad and ugly to that i I don't know that it needs to mean any particular thing um but it, it is sort of fascinating that we've got that opportunity yeah i i wonder if it's connected to the um I can't remember, Megan, what you called the the para friendships or the parasocial parasocial relationships. Yeah, yeah, parasocial relationships. I wonder if it's connected to that in the sense that when we encounter these pieces of literature like the Lord of the Rings, the the way in which it moves and changes us is is real, mm-hmm. and and of course the world is not real, and I wonder if there's some 
thing. It's a little bit why why we would like to meet Gandalf or 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 go to where Mount Doom is. There's a way in which it is it is confirming the reality of our experience mm. by having something tactile and tangible <laughs> that that we can connect with what feels like it's in our brain. I think so because I think it's the same reason like going to a museum and seeing a painting in person is different than seeing it in a book because you're just like mm-hmm. Van Gogh painted this like he touched it those are his brush strokes like you know those are Jackson Pollock's fingerprints on in the paint um mm-hmm. and that's just something different and I experience that all the time like in my job you know I'm touching things that like cleaning Harry Truman's World War One boots, you know, it's just like, mm. like Harry Truman actually wore these things. <laughs> That's yeah. why they smell. <laughs> like, um, and so there is something about that, like, tangible um, aspect and like being not quite holy ground, like with Lord of the Rings, but you know, being in the place where like something happened that you that is important to you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just yeah. And I think as as people who are in a tradition that has a really powerful strand of incarnational theology, I mean, right. a, a piece of what we say about Jesus is this is God meeting the deeply human yearning to be able to reach out and touch something that is bigger than our human understanding can fit. And because we can't cross the chasm to be where God is, God crosses it for us and, you know, condescends to be a human being and and a humble one and one that we can speak to and learn from Mm -hmm. and that 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 endures in a way and lets us have have a beginning of that encounter that we long for i I mean on just a deep level in in all kinds of parts of our lives yeah i mean there is a really um interesting and important way in which there's a physical component to, to any transformation that has to happen and because I do believe that literature like Lord of the Rings has the power to be really transformative in the world, that finding ways to make that, it's why, it's why you love the movies, right? I mean, one of the things we haven't had a chance to talk about is um, the movies versus the books in the Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. And for whatever you know inadequacies any film is going to have, it, I think one of the reasons why I love the movie so much is that there's a there's a visual like there's a sacramental part of like seeing things that are real mm-hmm. which is just one click more the case if you're actually going to the to the places right yeah and I that's super helpful for me to hear because I uh, I kind of like memed and stuttered my way through the last viewing that we did of the movies and, and was sort of joking about things pr- pretty irreverently throughout all of them. Um, and, and I, I do think there, there's something that I, that I really resist about how much the films put, put battle scenes and set piece fights on the screen when the Hobbit, which, you know, you're, you're reading with your kids now, like all of the action happens in conversations between people. And, and the, the moment of highest suspense is the riddle game with Gollum in the lowest point under the mountain. Right. And like there, there's danger of being killed, but the the danger is all wrapped up in whether you get a riddle wrong in this conversation going back and forth. Mm -hmm. And, and in Mm -hmm. some ways, like whether these two creatures can be intelligible to each other 
enough that something can happen that keeps Bilbo safe or not, right? And, uh, you know, the, and, and there are fight scenes in the book, but in a paragraph, like Gandalf cut up two golems and even Bilbo turned around and accounted for one. And that, like, that's the battle. And, it, it, you know, if there's sort of a complaint about the books. I think it's that Bilbo, Bilbo never sort of stops and reflects on the fact that he's taken lives in the course of these journeys uh, as he's, you know, wandering around with dwarves looking for treasure. And, you know, this, this sort of nice, uh, like landed nobleman hobbit from the Shire who's off like slaughtering goblins now all of a sudden. Um, but like setting that aside, like the, the fight stuff all, all goes by really quickly in the books, relatively speaking. And, uh, you know, you, you just get little comments about like it, things looked very bad for them until the Eagles showed up. Uh, and then you get like half an hour at a time of fight scenes in the movies that I think can, can have their, their sort of day in glorifying violence in a way that is troubling. Uh, e- even though I think they do a good job of showing all the lamentation and fear around it and the, the sort of very human negative sides of it. But that piece of conversation, I think, is just really, it, it is so important uh, to how the books work that that lives are changed by people talking to each other. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, the the battle scenes, you know, the the and the this was, I think, the major criticism of the movies is that they they sort of just take a kind of action movie, particularly I think the return of the King has a real action movie feel to it. And on the one hand, those battle scenes in the movies are really beautifully shot in terms of cinematography and Mm -hmm. choreography. And, you know, they're, they're, they're violent, but beautiful to look at as film. But in the books, you know, part of the whole point of the story is that evil is not overcome by having a bigger and better army, you know, or evil is not overcome by violence because the reality is even when um, the, the armies of humans, you know, and, and everyone else comes together to, um, to sort of resist Sauron, when the ring is destroyed, they're in really bad shape because they're completely inadequate, you know? So, right, so the, yeah. the, the point of the books is that evil is overcome by smallness and humility not by you know bigger and badder weapons yeah right yeah for for a fellowship that began with you know my sword and my bow and my axe right (laughs) right right um yeah anything else you want to say i don't think i have any other critical things this has been a pretty great and wide-ranging conversation (laughs) and one of the things that it has re-emphasized to me that I just love is that we could do this podcast 15 times and not be at the end of it, you know, which is, which is why people, you know, watch the movies so often or read the books every year, because it's just, there's just no, no way to get to the end of it. Well, we will do this podcast 15 more times, at least it won't all be on Lord of the Rings and Craig, we might invite you to come back on if you find some other uh, moment where you want to take a step from nerd adjacent into full on nerd with us. Yes. Um, but meanwhile, thanks a ton for coming on. It really is wonderful. And we got into some great stuff tonight. It's been great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Craig. And meanwhile, uh, friends, if you listening uh, would like to get in touch, uh, if you want to reach out and try to practice some friendship and fellowship and drive back the evil with the smallness of your humility, you can reach us at comicbelieppodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at comicbelieppod. 
And until next time, uh, be well. We'll see you soon. Wear a mask, save the world. Save us from ourselves.